This week on the podcast, a Dodge Demon is worth 700k. I just built a new Mustang. Flying cars are no longer the future. The Fiesta is over, and Tupac is having a hard time selling his car. And finally, I'm back from another round of Beamer Challenge, which came with some explosive drama this week. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe wherever you're catching this podcast, and follow us on YouTube and Instagram for more content at 91octane. Let's start the show. Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and let's go under the hood. Barrett Jackson is back with another rich guy circle jerk. A 2023 Dodge Demon 170 takes $700,000 at auction. 700K. This is the first 2023 Dodge Challenger SRT Demon, and it was auctioned at Barrett Jackson for a charitable cause raising an impressive total of $700,000. Now, if you own a Challenger, if you own a Demon, right, really any trim of Challenger, I'm sorry, this does not mean that your car is not worth more. Sorry to burst that bubble. That's just what it is. I know some of you are going to try to use this as a reason. Hey, my car's worth an extra 5k. One just sold at uh, Barrett-Jackson for $700,000. This is for a charity. This is a special occasion situation, unique situation, right? That's not what this is. Your car is not going to sell for more. Don't get in a hurry to go list it or bring a trailer. It's still going to be worth what it's worth. But they brought out all the bells and whistles for this thing. Actress Nicole Kidman apparently play, played a pivotal role in the auction proceedings. She was involved. She was giving away things. Uh, she was the auctioneer uh, trying to generate excitement. Uh, I get it, though. Like The Barrett-Jackson crowd is probably the generation that grew up with Nicole Kidman. I, I thought it was a bit of an odd name. Um, I mean, it's sort of like it was kind of weird when Will I Am was at F1, too. I think Will I Am and, and Lil Wayne made a song. That's a little cringy about F1. Um, the, the whole Miami thing. Uh, it's very similar to this Nicole Kidman being involved in auctioning off a Dodge Challenger. Now, the winning bidder donated the car back to Barrett Jackson, and then they auctioned it again. So it took two auctions to get the car to $700,000. Shame, shame, Dodge. It had to take you two shots to get to the 700,000 mark. That's crazy, though. Right? There's, I mean, I'm sure this is going to be a neat tax write-off for somebody. But, uh, yeah, that's wild. Three, just, I mean, average it out. Each person paid $350,000 for a car, and one of them doesn't even get to drive it. Uh, the car was worthless to them, but they ended up paying that much money. Nicole Kidman actually offered VIP tickets to her husband, and this guy continues to haunt us, Keith Urban. Keith Urban's been a meme on this show for quite some time, since, I think, SEMA three years ago, where he was part 
of the Ford installment or Ford area of SEMA. And Ford gave him a muscle car and a guitar. And all of us were just dumbfounded. Like, this guy doesn't need a free car. This guy doesn't need a free guitar. Like, what? Like, I just didn't understand the idea behind the marketing of having Keith Urban receive a ton of free stuff at SEMA in front of us poor folk there to just ooh and ah over cars we can't have. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know why Keith Urban is is at all these events. I mean, he must be a huge car nut. That would explain it. And uh these VIP tickets were to Keith Urban's show in Vegas as an ind- additional incentive for the winning bidder. I mean, the winning bidder didn't even want the car, the first one. So I doubt he's really looking or maybe that's what he wanted. Maybe he wanted the Keith Urban tickets. I wonder where he would be what VIP seating means, right? I mean, are you like behind the scenes? I would expect if you're spent spending that kind of money that maybe you'd be like backstage, but I'm not certain that VIP means backstage because VIP tickets are sold, and I doubt you'd sell backstage passes. That's a recipe for disaster. The winning bidder was awarded the last build slot for the Dodge Challenger SRT Demon 170, uh, which allows them to build it to whatever they want. And just so, just as a reminder, the de- this particular demon has a thousand twenty-five horsepower and nine hundred and forty-five pound-feet of torque. This is on E85, but that is wild. That Dodge is putting together some specifications that yield over eight thousand horsepower directly from a manufacturer. I mean, from like a mainstream manufacturer. I mean, this isn't a Ferrari. This isn't a McLaren. This isn't though. This is Dodge. This is uh, the company that was hiring for the chief donut officer not too long ago. A thousand horsepower in a Demon. The quarter mile of this car is eight point nine one seconds at one hundred and fifty one miles per hour. And Dodge is facing a ban from NHRA, NHRA due to safety concerns of the car. That's how bonkers this car is. Even the NHRA is like, yo, you guys need to slow down a bit. This car is a little too crazy and unsafe as a result. What's cool about all this, though, is the auction proceeds do benefit Chrissy House, which is an organization dedicated to supporting children who have experienced trauma they provide treatment, advocacy, and coordination of all services to kind of cater to that. So that's good that $700,000 is going to them. What's wild, though, is this car, man. I mean, these, uh, the Challenger, it's such a boat, too. Like, I feel like it would be scary. I mean, I I've normally drive small cars with the exception of my truck. And even for a truck, it's a small truck. Um, But, yeah, 1,000 horsepower in a Challenger in a boat. Uh, it's a land yacht. I don't know, man. That sounds intense. But, you know, people are going to be chomping at the bit to have it. A thousand horsepower. Impressive, Dodge. Impressive. Now, what is more likely to fall off a car? A bumper? A wheel? How about a battery? An electric car got stranded because the battery pack fell off while driving. And I had heard of cars that have swappable batteries, but I didn't realize 
they ha- they were already mainstream. I thought it was like a hobbyist thing. And so this was in China, a Geely Cow Cow 60 electric SUV experienced an incident where its battery pack fell off while driving on a busy highway. Uh, that sounds extremely dangerous because these battery packs aren't small. I mean, it's not like you're swapping a battery pack on your impact gun. I mean, these are massive batteries in order to operate these cars, even if they are small. This is an SUV. Um, and this is part of Geely's ride-hailing service, sort of similar to... Uh, it's basically a taxi. Um, and although no injuries were reported for this incident, there are concerns around safety of swappable battery technology. I'm sure you can make it work, but, I mean, this battery with the weight of batteries and the size that's probably required for it is probably not something that you want to... Uh, manage with like zip ties or anything like that right this is going to require some serious work but you have to balance the fact that it needs to be convenient to swap or people aren't going to want these cars like if you had to lift a 100 200 pound battery out of your car and put another one in to get some extended life that i mean it's almost like it's almost like having to swap your tires mid trip mid trip right Say you had to rotate your tires every 300 miles um, as you're traveling across country. It's not a big deal, but it's a it's an inconvenience enough to make you reconsider taking that car, right? Like it's just like why why do I need to do this? Why do I need to do this every 300 miles? And that seems to be the state of these batteries of these EVs with swappable batteries. Now, in this particular car, um, the battery was actually secured to the underbelly using fasteners and a quick-release clamp. The quick-release clamp came undone. There's still... The jury is out on, was this user error? Was this an issue with the car? But, I mean, most companies need to sort of put in measures to prevent the idiots from getting them in trouble, right? So... If the quick release is hard enough to miss or not use properly for whatever reason, uh, it could be that the company ends up at fault. Uh, but I just don't end up seeing how this works. This would probably never work here. Um, you know, the clear benefit of this is that you can go longer trips, right? You carry three batteries in your car. Now you've extended your range threefold. Okay, cool. You don't have to charge. But in the U.S., infrastructure ev infrastructure i think is getting to a place it's not there completely yet at least cross country wise it's not there but it is getting to a place where charging technology is moving fast enough and then the infrastructure is there to have enough stations on a trip to be able to manage a chargeable vehicle versus a vehicle that requires batteries to be swapped so i don't see this happening here Maybe it happens for, like, more niche equipment. Maybe, like, when we start getting into, like, electronic construction equipment, you know, which probably already exists. A lot of that has, I mean, tooling, I guess, makes sense. It's all swappable battery technology. But we start getting into, like, major rigs that become electric. Maybe in that case we've got swappable batteries. But in terms of mainstream road use vehicles ah there's just no necessity for that out here really at all but 
I built a new car today. I talked about that in the intro, and it's a Mustang, and it's going to cost me $66,000. But it's not what you think it is. The 2024 Ford Mustang configurator is now live. It had been live for a little while, but now it's got all the bells and whistles, and you can do all the things that you want to do to configure your new Mustang. And it's pretty customizable in what you can do. It's more so a lot of the basic things, but there are a few trims. And I decided to build my own dark horse uh, while I was in there. And it came out to $66,000. And 500 horsepower for $66,000, that does not sound bad at all. It, I don't know, it's... The dark horse, I don't know. I don't know where I sometimes some days I feel like, okay, this is pretty cool. I, I you know, I, I wouldn't mind having it. Another day is I'm like, do I really want a car that's called the dark horse that has a night pony like arrow package that you can get? Night pony. I, I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking uh, with that. But do I take that money and buy a Supra instead? It's not 500 horsepower out the gate, but you can get there pretty easily. I don't know. So some days I'm Team Ford, some days I'm not. Now, the Mustang is offered an EcoBoost, GT, and Dark Horse with the total six trims available. They have, like, a premium for each of those versions. So EcoBoost, EcoBoost Premium, GT, GT Premium, Dark Horse, Dark Horse Premium. Um, that has, you know, a few enhancements, a few more luxuries in each of those trims. There are convertible options, but those are only available in EcoBoost and GT premium trims. And the price ranges from 33000 on the entry-level entry EcoBoost to 64000 on the Dark Horse premium. Which, I don't know, I, th I just think that's a really good window uh, to have sort of your flagship... Uh, performance car kind of sit in you span the full segment now i have driven an ecoboost mustang before in the previous generation and i absolutely hated it it was a soulless car but i mean there is a segment for that right if you want a mustang and you don't mind it being a you know you want it to be turbo and you don't mind it being a little underpowered you're going to love that. I mean, it's not it's not for me, but it's not necessarily a bad car, but I did hate it. I did hate it. For me, I, I would never, it just, it didn't feel, if I want a four-cylinder car, I'm going to go JDM. It just didn't feel good. It didn't feel strong. And it had a blow-off valve, too, the one that I drove. And it was just, I don't know, it felt obnoxious. It didn't sound good. The exhaust didn't sound good. It just didn't feel like that powertrain belonged in a Mustang. I know a lot of that is just learned behavior at this point. I'm used to Ford being the V8 uh, or the Ford Mustang being the V8 car. Maybe that's what it is, but I didn't like it. But to some people, it might be an option they'd want to take. And at 33000 it's on the cheaper side of performance vehicles. And I mean, you are getting the Mustang performance now just with a little less power. That's not too bad. Not for me, but it's not too bad. Now, uh, the GT model has the 5-liter V8, which produces 480 of the 500 horsepower that the Dark Horse has. There's only a 20-horsepower difference between the GT and the Dark Horse, 
Which sort of begs the question, right? Why bother with the Dark Horse? The Dark Horse, I think really the only advantage that it has is sort of the same advantage that the GT500 and the GT350 had where they're more expensive, therefore more exclusive, therefore more desirable down the line. I think when I started looking at GT350s maybe four years ago, I kind of caught the bug in terms of getting one. I love the whole flat plane crank thing. They were sitting at like maybe forty, forty-five thousand for a used one, right? Now those same used ones. I don't know if you guys can pick that up, but there are fireworks going on outside. Oh, the, the U.S. national team just won uh, the entry to the semifinals in the Gold Cup. For those of you interested in soccer, and that is likely why there are fireworks going outside, because of course a lot of these people have some extras because July Fourth was not too long ago. <laughs> Man, that's good. they're going crazy out there. Anyway, back to it. It's it, The only appeal of the Dark Horse would be that, right? That you could retain its value a little more because the GT350 now is probably closer to 60 to 70 or the ones that you're seeing. Now, this is listings. I don't know necessarily know where they're being sold. Maybe 55 to 65 is probably the the range. But the point is... They've retained, not only retained value, but approached their brand new MSRP uh, as they got older versus losing value like the GTs would. But if you don't really care about that, it might make more sense to go with the GT model at 480 horsepower. 20 horsepower, although something, in most cases, is just, it's marginal. Like, I mean, if, you know, if you're doing, like, at the track, if you're at the track, 20 horsepower is going to make a bit of a difference. A small difference, but it's still going to make a difference. But in everyday driving, in driving enjoyment, in driver experience, 20 horsepower ain't going to do anything. I mean, when when people get, like, you know, tunes that give them 15 or 20 horsepower, maybe there's some low-end torque that's impacted and they feel a little different. They might notice something. Most of the time, though, it's just your butt lying to you. It's fun to do. It's fun to tune. 20 horsepower, though, unless in, in like extreme high-performance driving situations, you're not really going to notice it much. So I did consider building a GT and not a dark horse because it's close to 20 grand in terms of the difference. You're not getting the Dark Horse label, but, I mean, it would have been cooler to get, like, I wanted a number car, right? A GT350, a GT500. Number cars are cool. Dark Horse with a night pony package, kind of hard to brag about that, in my opinion. It's kind of hard to, hey, man, I got a new Dark Horse, and check it out. It also has the night pony package. Kind of a difficult flex, you know? Very, It's a hard flex for sure. Definitely a hard flex. And Ford has stated that 20% of the Mustang GT, uh, 27% of the Mustang GT and Dark Horse buyers are going to opt in for manual transmissions. And 50% of EcoBoost buyers are going with the performance package, which to each their own, but I would save your money and spend it elsewhere. That's a pretty good number, though. I mean, it, you're close to three out of every 10 Mustangs are going to be sold with a manual transmission in this day and age, right? In an age where now automatic transmissions are considered, at least on the performance end, better 
than its manual counterparts, right? Better than us shifting, than human shifting in our reaction times. But the driver experience is such that three out of every 10 Mustangs sold, at least the GT and the Dark Horse, will still have the manual. This is good news, you know, because we're getting a lot of news lately. I've been talking a lot. Nissan dropped the um, the manual transmission in the Nismo. BMW stated that they're not going to be moving forward with manual transmissions anymore. They're going to stay automatic. We're getting more and more of this news. Uh, so I think it's cool that we're still investing in manual transmissions, or at least Ford is still investing in manual transmissions. I wouldn't mind having a Mustang. Not high on the list right now. I've got a lot of work to do already on the three cars that I own that I ignore as much as possible because working in the garage can be such a drag sometimes. Sometimes it can be super fun, but sometimes it's such a drag. You know what it is? Whenever like there's a new and shiny part and a performance part that to install, that's fun. That's cool to do. But all this, like, all of a sudden the check engine light comes on, there's a misfire to diagnose, this, this, and that. That's not fun to do. I don't want to do that stuff. I don't want to keep the car on the road. I want to make it look cool and go fast. But anyway, if you want to forget the Mustang, there is another option. You could get a Koenigsegg. Or maybe not. I don't know how deep your pockets are. But the production version of the Koenigsegg Gamera is here. It's finally here. We saw the concept like a year ago in March. Um, and then now the production version is finally here. And they have the option, you have the option, to choose from a V8 engine from the Jesco that is paired with hybrid motors, resulting in... You didn't lose me there. I did take a sip resulting in 2,300 horsepower on E85, but 2,300 horsepower. And a power-to-weight ratio of 0. 0.77 to 1, nearly a 1 to 1. Not quite there, but very close to a 1 to 1. 2,300 horsepower. At 77.1, I should have done the math. So it's, what's... What's 77% of 2,300? I don't know. There's too much math to do. I'm not going to do it on the fly. But let's say, I don't know, we split it into quarters. Let's say 3,000-pound car, 2,300 horsepower. I mean, it's 2,300 horsepower in a car that weighs what my race car weighs. That is insane. Can you even use it? It is an all-wheel drive car. But can you even use it? I don't know. They also offer an inline three for those who prefer that over the V8 option. It's a little less power, I think, but uh, but it's still a high performance uh, powertrain. They did add uh, wing mirrors uh, to comply with regulations in markets like ours in the U.S., of course, and it can be equipped with a Ghost package. Koenigsegg Gamera Ghost. Or a Ford Mustang Dark Horse Night Pony. Which one? Which one? Which one do you choose? Quickly, quickly. Which one do you choose? I think that's an easy one. The Ghost Package just adds aero 
and reduces front trunk space as a result. So you actually lose stuff if you go with the Ghost package. I don't know that you're worried about trunk space if you're buying a Gamera. So maybe the Ghost package is something you want to do. Now, the production is expected to start uh, pretty soon, and early customers are going to start receiving their cars in 2025, but at least the production version has been announced. So you have a little while uh, to start saving up those pennies and dollars to accumulate the nearly $2 million it's going to cost to buy this car. Koenigsegg's, I'm not a big supercar guy. I've said this a lot. You know, McLarens don't really do it for me. I know a lot of you are going to say, hey, because you can't afford it. True, true enough. I don't have the pockets for those cars, nor do I have the desire or willingness to take on the debt that some people take on to acquire these cars. But Koenigsegg is a brand that I've always admired in terms of the art that they put on the streets uh, with their cars. I mean, they're just so beautiful looking. And then, you know, you're talking 2,300 horsepower, these astronomical numbers. It's like everything about this car is just cranked to 11. And that is absolutely awesome. So even though it is unlikely that I'll ever have one, you never know. But it's unlikely that I'll ever have one. I think it's pretty cool that they're doing this type of stuff. So... If you have a 2300 horsepower Koenigsegg Gamera in 2025 and you feel so inclined to let me drive it, I promise you I will not crash it and I will drive it very, very calmly. I just want the experience. I thank you ahead of time. Now, one day you might be able to fly your car home from the track. A flying car prototype just received certification from the FAA. Alef, Alef Automotive which is a California startup, uh, received certification from the Federal Aviation Administration to test its flying car known as the Model A. Now, the Model A is the first fully electric vehicle approved by the FAA that can both fly and travel on public roads. It has vertical takeoff and landing capabilities and can be parked like a normal car. It, of course, is not going to look like a normal car. It's you know this wild-looking contraption. It's not like you're going to see the Back to the Future DeLorean where the wheels kind of just uh, shift horizontally and then flies away. You know, where we're going, we don't need roads. That's not what you're getting. You're getting a car that very much looks like it can fly and drive. That's what you're getting. But it's still pretty cool. It's, exper- it's expected to carry two occupants at least... And with road has a road range of 200 miles, which is pretty good, and a flying range of 110 miles, which is actually pretty good too. I would have expected it to require a lot more effort to stay in the air than on the road. But half the amount of range, that's pretty good. And 110 miles, you're covering a lot of distance in this car. It's pretty cool. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know. That, I mean, that's just the idea of individuals flying around in the sky, disrupting, you know, the airspace in terms of public travel that's available currently with airplanes and such. 
I don't know how that would work. And and I mean, you'd have to get licensed to fly it. Is it is it going to require like a pilot's license license, or will it be a different license? Maybe they're. I mean, if the company gets big enough, they might lobby for their own licensing. That maybe it's a little less strict. I doubt it, though. I mean, with any with anything being in the sky, with anyone being in the sky, I imagine there's got to be a lot of certification that needs to go into place, similar to a pilot pilot license, and probably very likely a pilot license. So the FAA issued a special airworthiness certificate to ALEF, ALEF, allowing for limited purposes such as exhibition and R&D. Um, they aren't the first to do this and receive this kind of certificate, but they differentiate, differentiate themselves by being able to both do roads and air with this permit. So they do resemble a normal car in terms of its actions, and the car actually fits in standard parking spaces. So it's compact enough to actually function within the current street infrastructure and parking inf infrastructure that exists all across the country. So it starts seeming like it might be an actual viable option. The vehicle is currently classified as a low-speed vehicle and restricted to a maximum speed of 25 miles per hour on paved roads, but this is for testing only. Um, and they, they do still require uh, approval from the NHTSA to operate on public roads. So the FAA did give them essentially the license to function as both, but they do still need approval from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to implement the use on the roads. They have developed the Model A since 2015 and was actually inspired by Back to the Future. That's that's what the owner claims. 2015 is just eight years ago. It didn't, I mean, it is a long time, but um, it's not that long ago. Uh, so technology is moving very, very fast, and they did conduct successful automated test flights in 2018 in which they flew a full-size prototype, um, and then they continued to do those test runs throughout the years. So they already have some pretty significant confidence that these vehicles can perform well now with passengers. I don't know what like the weight limits on this stuff is. I imagine you'd have to be pretty light. Or they're going to keep it pretty strict. But, I mean, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool that this technology is still being developed. I'm just wondering how it's going to work in the skies, right? Or do they have a limit in terms of how high they can go? But if we start seeing, like, these cars flying around the city, kind of like the fifth element and whatnot, I don't know. This just sounds very chaotic. Like, how would that happen? I have no idea how that would happen. Now, these cars are expected to be worth and sell for $300,000, and they're anticipating to deliver them at the end of 2025. So they're not cheap by any means, as I would expect for something like this. I mean, you're essentially buying what I would expect a helicopter or, you know, a life-size in a adult-sized drone, uh, I guess if you can call it. 300,000, I don't know. I can find much better ways to spend 300,000. I'm not opposed to being in the sky. I'm not afraid of flying, but I also have no desire to be there. And so I'll just use the $300,000 and uh, continue saving for my Koenigsegg Gamera. Now, 
on to our next headline. And ain't no fiesta like a gangsta fiesta because a gangsta fiesta don't quit. Except it just did. The final Ford Fiesta rolls off the production line in Cologne. It's over. The production of the Ford Fiesta, UK's best-selling car, and a beloved car to us over here stateside is coming to an end or has come to an end after an almost 50-year history. So the final model is being manufactured or was manufactured in Cologne, Germany, before the plant is to be modified to produce electric cars. So you can blame electric cars for the demise of the Ford Fiesta. It was first produced in 1976 and gained a lot of popularity because it was smaller, it was efficient, and over 20, 20, uh, 22 million Fiestas have been produced globally. And I didn't know that the Fiesta was a best-selling vehicle in the UK, uh, but it was the best-selling vehicle between 2009 and 2020 and had over 1.5 million license for use in UK roads in 2022. 20, from 2009 to 2020, the Fiesta was the selling champion. That's not a small feat especially considered all the other brands that are out there. Um, and then out here, we had it too. It wasn't as great of a selling car out here, but we did have the uh, Fiesta ST. That was a nice little cool hot hatch out here for a little while. That was a little option that you don't really see or hear much anymore. I know the Focus RS came out and got all the attention, and then they shut it down after three years. And now they're all rare and crazy overpriced in the used market. But the Fiesta ST, I don't know, sort of the, the unsung hero. It did suffer from like heat soaking issues. I do remember that. But those are always fairly simple to resolve. But now it's going away. Um, they did announce it in last October. We covered it then. But now the final car to be made has been made. Um, and the Ford Focus is actually set to stop production in 2025 as well. I mean, we already don't get them out here. But in the UK, they will get them until 2025. And then at that point... It will be all over for that car, at least in that form. Maybe they bring back the Focus and the Fiesta and EVs, which is a totally different car, but maybe that happens. Who knows? Uh, that's the direction that they're moving in. That's what they're changing these plants to. So it makes sense that they might start investing in these cars. There's still a huge uh, used car market around the Fiesta. I mean, say what you want about that car. It's still very convenient, even out here where things are a little bigger than Europe or at least the UK, um, it's a good A to B vehicle uh, for the most part. And they're pretty cheap to get um, even now that they've been discontinued. I don't expect them to go up in price, except for like the ST trims. You might see those go up in price a little bit, become a little more desirable. But maybe that's already been priced in since we haven't gotten any new ones out here for a little while. Now, um Ford plans to keep the final two Fiestas with one staying in Germany, Germany and the other one being placed in the company's heritage collection in the UK. I thought this was odd. Um, it it kind of makes that sentence makes me feel kind of like Ford is a German company, which it very much is not. Um, but they did build the Focus RSs, too. There was a lot of Ford going on in Germany. Um, so maybe Ford is a German brand at this point. 
Who knows? But uh, we don't get one. Uh, there is none. No Fiesta is going to be in the Harry, Henry Ford Museum. Not that anyone's going to be sad about that. Just seems a little odd since Ford is an American company. Or at least I thought it was. Now, this whole time, this entire time, so I've been looking for ways to get a GTR, right? Kind of how, how do I get registration? How do I figure that out with having to dish out too much money? There's one way. There's another way. There are gray area ways. And it turns out that this whole time, I could have registered the GTR in Vermont. Now, it would have come to an end now, but I could have done it up to this point. The Vermont DMV has finally closed a loophole that allowed anyone in the U.S. to register a car in Vermont, in Vermont, regardless of where they live. It didn't matter where you lived, you could re- uh, register a car in Vermont. Now, the wild thing is that it even gets it gets worse than that. Previously, out-of-state people could register their cars in Vermont, and all they had to do was pay a $76 registration fee and a 6% ta- sales tax. Not too bad. But these lenient policies did not require titles for cars that were over 15 years old. They didn't require proof of insurance. And this made it an appealing option for a lot of car buyers and a lot of nefarious individuals. I mean, it's wild to me that you don't need a title for a car that's older than 15 years. That's not that old. If you take take that's two thousand eight. Technically, my E ninety two M three wouldn't require a title to be registered in Vermont. That is wild. That's like open season for car thieves, for sure. Which makes sense why they closed this loophole. It's unfortunate that I didn't know about it before, and it's weird that we don't see a lot of Vermont license plates out here. Now, they decided to close to uh, to close a loophole due to the fraudulent activities that I mentioned, right? They're stolen cars. Um mostly just stolen cars, right? And bringing in car maybe even bringing in cars that shouldn't be in the country. Um considering how lenient their laws were, I mean, it wouldn't be a surprise to see a lot of those cars there. Now, it's interesting what they're going to do about like purging all the fraudulent activity, how they're going to identify that, you know, how do I, how do they, how do they identify a legitimate car versus a non-legitimate car? They might have to grandfather some things for now and just move forward. There really isn't a lot of information on that, but they did see an increase on people who would register multiple cars, um, you know, in Vermont. This was becoming a business at this point in terms of going to Vermont getting a legitimate registration, and then being able to convert that registration to another state. So you can you can essentially launder a car through, and these are not instructions, by the way, and I mean, this is sort of how I'm speculating how this works. So don't take my word for it. If you try it and you get arrested, that's on you. You don't you can't tell them 91 Octane told you to do it because this is in no way advice and it's nothing I would attempt myself. But essentially what they were doing, I believe, is buying getting stolen cars, registering them without titles in Vermont. Now there's a paper trail in Vermont and using that registration to then transfer the car over um, to another state. And if the state wasn't as strict in terms of their requirements, you get away with that. And at that point, you have laundered the car twice and now a stolen car 
becomes a clean car. Um, I think if it was reported stolen in another jurisdiction, you might be in some trouble. But I don't know that states talk to states necessarily. Not all states do it in terms of a database of stolen cars. So you might be able to get away with it and definitely enough to warrant enough people running to the DMV in Vermont for them to actually change this law. Even Florida took measures to address the issue before Vermont did anything about it. Like, if you're pissing off Florida in terms of leniency, uh, you're messing up. Vermont, yeah, Vermont was out there in terms of their vehicle laws, uh, which is interesting. I mean, I wish I would have known this earlier. I could have been one of the nefarious people with a GTR. But not a stolen one. You know, just purchased uh, in interesting ways and getting it over across from Japan and not having to do all the crazy emissions and safety stuff. But this change aims to prevent stolen cars, you know, a lot of this reckless activity and fraud from happening, which has now plagued Vermont uh, in terms of vehicle activity. Um I'm going to stay close to this. I'm hope to see, you know, what actually comes of this law, what changes, you know, are they expecting to see? Um, the not requiring proof of insurance is pretty crazy to me in this day and age, but I do live in California where they're very strict about vehicles. Um, and, you know, even, God, I'm working on my uh, ODB monitors right now on the E92 to make sure to go get it smog so I can get a title because that car is not legal currently. I need to figure that out. But yeah, we're strict out here. So to hear that there are still states in 2023 being this lenient, that is wild. Now, it turns out people don't want a car that someone has died in. Who would have thought? What a shocking revelation that somebody doesn't want a car that somebody died in. At least not for $1.7 million. Over $1.7 million. Tupac's 750IL uh, has been listed. We talked about this um, by a used car sales called Celebrity Cars in Vegas for years now. I feel like it's been years since I talked about the, the listing going up. But now we're finding that the listing is still there. And this is the car that Tupac died in in 1996 in a drive-by shooting at the Las Vegas Strip. Um, it's a 90, 1996 BMW 750IL uh, that was owned by Death Row Records. And the car has been involved in a bunch of investigations over the years around his death. And it changed hands between collectors. So it, it it was a collector item for a little while, or at least that's what the claim is. Probably buy celebrity cars because they want to offload this. But it's currently for sale at this Las Vegas dealership for $1.7 million. This can get you the Koenigsegg I was just talking about. What would you rather have? And, hey, I'm not... I, I love Tupac. I'm West Coast forever. I do have respect for Biggie, but so did Tupac at one point. They were friends. And I do not, I do not think that it makes any sense to get a 90s BMW, whatever it is, for $1.7 million with the availability of the Koenigsegg, right? That's the car I would want to waste that money on. 
Now, despite the dark history, the car actually looks pretty cool, right? It's on, you know, big wheels. Um, it actually has been driven a lot. It has 120,000 miles on it, which makes it worth a little less. You know, like it's a it's it's a it's a basic car. Like it's, it's just a regular car. I know Tupac died in it, but I mean, maybe like put it in a museum. I don't know that a collector is going to want it. Just doesn't make sense at this point. And I, I, maybe it's worth it to them. I don't know how much they paid for it, but maybe it's worth it to them because now they've still got people talking about them, right? I, I just mentioned celebrity cars, not that I'm anyone, but I just mentioned them. I'm sure there are other companies noticing this too in terms of them listing Tupac's death car, which is crazy. Uh, and it seemed in poor taste at the time, and I still think it is. But I guess maybe it is good publicity. Who knows? Um, it ha- has has had multiple owners, but now it just sits with celebrity cars not being sold at all. I am curious what they paid for it. I would want to know for sure. I don't know if uh, if those records are available. I doubt they are. Um, but I don't know. I'd want to know. Like I, I, st- I still think they paid like twenty grand for it, and they're listening it for one point seven million. I, I, st- I believe that. Or at least I want to. I don't know. It does have a Carfax report, and it shows a gap in records after July of 1996. So that's sort of the only piece. Carfax is really the only piece of that car that sort of really ties it to that history. It's the only piece of proof. So at least there is proof, but it's the only piece of proof that ties it. I mean, I'm sure there's registration and stuff, but sort of beyond that, that ties it to this event. I don't know that it's a it's a very sad event. It's not. I mean, I think if he would have done anything else in it, but die, it might be worth more. Uh, but I don't know. It's just it's it's very dark memorabilia. And I know there are people out there that like that type of stuff, but maybe not for one point seven million dollars. And those are your headlines for the week. Now let's get into our segment and last bit of the episode. Chasing Beamer Challenge, this time at Streets of Willow, running clockwise. So this is round seven of Beamer Challenge at Willow Springs in Rosamond, California. I was coming off a win at Streets of Willow counterclockwise in round six. It was still expected to be 96 degrees with clear skies. And uh, for the most part, no wind. And it stayed to that. I checked before. I was expecting, or it was expected to be a windless day. And it got to the point like around midday where the wind was blowing a little bit, but nothing too crazy. So, which is good. And it's anytime that it isn't like crazy windy at Willow Springs is a good event, which I've had a few so far. Knock on wood. Hopefully, I keep having them. Now, what did I do to prepare? Maxxis RC1s were on the list the last time we talked about preparing for an event. And they were on this list in terms of things I needed to achieve before uh, the event. Um, But some things happened. So I was going to replace them. And through NASA, because I still had my membership, I wanted to get my Maxxis discount through their contingency program 
there's a 10% discount on those wheels. And I mean, a set of tires is going to run you a grand, maybe a little more than that. So any little bit helps. So I was like, oh, well, I'll wait for the membership to come out. I emailed them. I got no response. I'm like, man. And then I let too much time pass. Got a little distracted. Kind of felt like, oh, I, I got enough time. They can get here quick enough. They got here pretty quick the last time I ordered them. And then by the time I knew it, it was the weekend before the actual event, and there was no way I was going to get them in time. And I decided just to focus on other things. I'm like, screw it. I actually started researching, like, <laughs> how many heat cycles could the Maxxis RC1 take before they're absolutely useless and not worth using at the track? Of course, you're going to get a million different answers, and I'm going to find the one that supports my bias and stick to that and make myself feel comfortable about going to the track on tires that are barely going to keep me on the road. Okay, that's an exaggeration. They're not barely, but they're not going to perform their ideal uh, speed or grip, so to speak. Um, I think from at the eighth, east, eighth heat cycle, it's not the eighth heat cycle, it's the eighth event. And I would say I do anywhere from three to four sessions per event sometimes five but let's say three right three times eight that's 24 heat cycles before even getting to this event i i can't do this again i definitely need to make sure i get to new tires that could have probably been good for two or three seconds there alone but i didn't i let too much time pass oh well uh, I'm just going to keep moving forward. I kept the same alignment specs, so all I did was check to make sure that it was still in alignment, which it was, and left it as such. And the only preparation I did for myself uh, was some sim work. I've never ran this track clockwise, um, so I needed to make sure I saw it somehow. And using the sim, I was able to get some reps in and some practice. On the sim, I was doing with Comfort Soft Tires, on Gran Turismo, I was doing low 127s, high 126s. So I was like, okay, if I do, if I get to like 129, 128 on my first day, I feel pretty good. Usually I'm about two or three seconds off um, what I'm seeing on the sim for a track that I've never been to. If I've been there before, I usually am able to match it. But if I've never been there before, I can usually get within three seconds. So that was the plan. So we get to the big day. I drove out to Willow Springs at 5 a.m. It's nice because it's only two hours away, uh, which can seem like a lot, but it's not compared to like your Bunt Willows or Vegas, which feels like forever. Anything over three hours feels like forever for me. But anyway, this was two hours, so it wasn't too bad. Get there, unload, do the registration thing. It's all good. I get to finally get a close spot. Um, at streets and I don't have to walk miles to get to the registration area. So that was nice. Um, and I got ready for session one, which was at 820 in the morning. I decided to uh, like change up my strategy this time around because in previous events, I had kind of let the first session go and then jump in in hopes that I could get some open space. But it hadn't really worked out. Other people had the same idea or I don't know. It, usually that was the case. Another car came in later, so they were ended up behind me and they ended up being quicker or, you know, they were a red Corvette, which 
conveniently was there, but I didn't get any inter Corvette interruptions this time around. Um, so I decided to change it up, and I was like, I'm going to head out early. I'm going to be one of the first people there, get into the fast line, and just let people pass me, right? I feel like I am aware enough to let people pass. Um, so I'll just, the fast people can pass me, and I'll get to a spot eventually where I'll sit comfortably and I won't get any inter interruptions and I won't have to deal with the back of the pack, which is usually the most annoying part. And it actually worked out. I, I think that is definitely the move to go with. Uh, go out early. Just make sure that you're aware that you're paying attention to your mirrors and that you're leaving room for people to pass you. This is an open passing group that I'm doing this in. So it makes it easy. Um, I just don't want to... I don't like point buys sometimes because... I'm in the middle of a corner, whatever. I'm driving. I don't, I don't want to be sticking my hand. I, I just want my hands on the steering wheel. I feel safe that way. Um, so traffic was okay. You know, I didn't really encounter any major issues in my first session. I did have to let off the gas uh, at the finish line a couple times to get, like, some of more, the more underpowered vehicles that were driving better than me um, ahead of me. Uh, but nothing major, nothing beyond that. So I was able to uh, really get used to what I was doing on the track. What I was having a hard time figuring out is what gears I needed to be in. Um, up to this point with the sim, I mean, Gran Turismo just has an E30 M3 Evo, which matches the M3 in terms of horsepower and close in weight as well, but not torque. Um, and definitely not gearing. So the shifting that I'm learning on the sim isn't translating completely to what is happening at the track for in real life. So I'm having trouble figuring out being in second, being in third, you know, downshifting here and there. Um, and I want to minimize the amount of shifting I'm doing, first of all. But I just I feel like in some areas I'm in third, but I'm not shooting out as fast as I could like if I was in second but then I'm having a shift in the third in the middle of corners which is ill-advised um I don't think it's something that you know I would want to do I would want to shift before or after if possible um but you know I'm trying to figure that out but at the same time I'm realizing that streets of willow clockwise is scary compared to counterclockwise um Turn nine specifically, coming out of the back straight, coming out of that the loop, the the bull, you're coming down super fast. I don't even know what my speeds uh, were uh, at this point. I still got to look at my Garmin. Um, but you're coming down, and like it's there. It's definitely a you're going downhill, but there's enough of a hump where you can't see where that turn is. And, I mean, I'm very thankful I saw this a lot in the sim practice I was doing because getting used to that, even sort of understanding, like, my brain knowing that it's seen it on the sim was very, very hard. Like, I definitely could have stayed on the accelerator past the point that was my brain was telling me not to. So getting past the crest and into the turn, and I knew where I was shooting, and I can be pretty straight. Um, through there, but I just, I would always lift at least a little bit. I would lift and I know that I left speed there as a result, but it was just, it's just scary there. And then also shooting into turn two 
um, was a spot that I left a lot of time as well because I think I could have stayed pinned on the gas through one and then break between one and two somewhere in there, halfway in there, uh, to make that front straight even longer um, and improve time there and just carry that through the track. I think... You know, I think I definitely still left time there, but those were more intimidating areas of the track for sure that just require a little more practice. That's all it is. I was inching forward each session, but just not enough to where I think I, I got everything out of those corners that I could. But I did make those corners sort of my focus for that day. That was it. I was like, make sure you get those two right. Everything else kind of hit as best that you can but work the best or put the most focus on turn nine and turn one and two um that transition um the tires weren't too bad they were just about manageable but times were not good you know i was really shooting for a 130 on my first session i'm like okay let's shoot for 130 Anything in the 130s in the first session and then work down from that in the next two sessions. The only the first three sessions count with Beamer Challenge. I came off the track at a 131.4. So let's call it 0.4 off of where I wanted to be, right? If I would have been at a 130.9, not the ideal side of 130, but it still would have been 130. But I did not. And although it was good enough for third place, it just didn't feel good. It's not, it wasn't in line with my own goals, right? With me racing myself. That's what I was trying to do. And worst of all is the Garmin didn't get my session. Uh, something happened. It said the race coach malfunctioned, gave me a prompt, and I clicked, and then it just switched over to the home screen. And I hit review. There's nothing there. It was over in terms of the first session, which sucks because I would have learned so much. The plan was to review that and compare that to what I have in my mind and all the sim work that I've done, right? Where am I breaking a lot earlier than I was? You know, doing it in real time, you're seeing a lot of that stuff. But then when you get to review the footage over, you get to be a little more uh, in tune with the details of what's happening, without being distracted, right? The distraction of driving and shifting and, you know, moving around uh, on the track. So it, it would have been nice to learn, you know, what I was doing, how fast I was going, you know, how much faster I should be going. Um, you know, you don't really work in terms of looking down. Like, you don't look down and say, oh, I should be doing 86 and I'm doing 85. Let's hit the gas a little more. No, you sort of feel that. So if I would have known I could do, you know, I should be doing maybe five more, three more miles per hour here, there, there, I would have kind of, you know, been a little more uh, gentle with my inputs, right? Input a little more just to get those three miles per hour on that turn here and there. But I couldn't do that. The Garmin didn't capture that. So I had nothing to study. I just kind of thought about how I did and thought about that's sort of where I made the decision about focusing on turn nine and you know one and two as well um and just kind of kicked back until the next session came around and the next session was at 10 a.m it was getting hot but I was still improving um you know I was in the 130s finally uh but traffic did become a challenge in session two which usually isn't the case because 
Now we have times based on session one, so you do grid by time. But there were these mosquito cars. Uh, they sounded like mosquitoes. I don't even know what they're called, to be honest. They look like little, like one person barely fits in it, and it's got like off-road wheels and like a suspension that moves a lot. They look like, uh, I don't know, I don't know. They're like little motorcycles, but they're these tiny, tiny, they're like the size of like old-school Mini Coopers. They were these tiny, tiny little cars that sounded like mosquitoes when they were driving next to you. So in the second session, I actually passed the car that ha that currently had the second place time in B5, which which made me feel good. I feel like I was like, okay, I'm going a little faster than this guy now, so maybe I can improve to second place. So I passed him, and then I got stuck behind this mosquito car, which sucked because he ruined – I've always got a complaint. So take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> but turn nine was ruined by this mosquito car. Yeah, they were pretty quick or quick enough, uh, so to say. But out of the bowl, um, I would come out a lot quicker than them. And so halfway down the back straight into nine, I would catch up to them and I'd have to let off. And I would let off significantly to just kind of coast behind them and then just kind of roll through 9 and 10, and uh, it wasn't much of a challenge at this point. It was sort of like 6 tenths, 6 or 7 tenths. No, I'm going to say 6 tenths for sure in terms of what I had to come down to while driving through there, and uh, I kind of got stuck. It was my Corvette for the day. It was like three laps in which I got stuck, but suddenly we're cooking. I usually check my gauges on the front straight, um, but I noticed a flagger. I don't even know what flag they were swinging because they had it rolled up. I think it was a sudden realization that something was happening. So they just kind of wanted to sh like say something to me. So they did that. And this was go heading into the back straight-ish. Um, and I looked at my gauges, and I was at 280-degree water temps this motor is i mean it is it's almost as hot as an oven at this point i immediately start coasting uh luckily through the back straight just go through that little complicated session in nine and ten out to the spit skid pad and go out as soon as soon as i hit the paddock the car shuts down I'm like, I'm using momentum to get to my spot. Luckily, it wasn't too far. I actually tried. I shouldn't have done this, but just out of sheer nervousness, I guess, or panic, I tried turning the car on again, and it wouldn't. It would not turn on at all, but luckily, I had enough momentum to get into my spot, and the car is spewing coolant, and what seems like oil, I think the oil got hot enough to where it really, really thinned out, and it was leaking through the rear main because um, that's where I noticed there was most of it coming out. I still need to check it, so I don't know, uh, you know, exactly what's where the problem is. It doesn't smell like burnt oil at all. It smells completely like coolant. But when I did feel the ground after I moved the car uh, or got it on the uh, on the trailer, um, it it was oily uh, for sure. So there's definitely some oil there. 
I just don't know how much of it was oil. And a, the car threw a code for coolant temps. So excessive coolant temps, check immediately. Um, I didn't see any visible leaking from the top of the engine bay, but there was plenty at the bottom. I still have to take a flashlight to the bay and, you know, raise it up on the quick jacks and just see where all the leaks are and what it's actually leaking. But it seems like there is a coolant leak somewhere. Uh, maybe the radiator. What's weird is that there, unless it all leaked out on the track, which maybe that happened and that's where it dumped it. Um, there really isn't a lot of evidence of any like blown radiator um, at all. So maybe the thermos, the thermostat stuck, and that's how it's got it got that hot. I mean, it was a hot day, but. I've been at Button Willow in like 105 degree weather uh, and it held fine. So there's definitely an issue there. But we still improved in those few laps that I was out there. I improved to second place. I did a 130.5, which is the time that I wanted to do in the first session. But there were no more sessions for me at this point. I mean, at this point, I'm thinking I've hurt the motor. Um, I don't know what's wrong with it. Um, I have distilled water probably enough to refill the coolant if that was the issue. Uh, but the car was so hot. I still had to wait anyway to open, you know, the, uh, the expansion tank and be able to put more water in there, or at least check if it was low. So there was nothing I could do. And I kept checking the car temperatures, you know, as it was cooling down and it was still hot when my next session next session came up, which is the last session in order to get official timing for the competition. So I was SOL. There was nothing I could do at that point. The session's over. Um, and the session, after my second session, a new challenger arrived and dropped a 127, which dropped me from second place th to third place now. So I had just jumped into second place at the end of my second event. And then in another session after mine, there was a new challenger that came in, dropped the 127 and pushed me back down the third. But now I had no way of improving my time. I wasn't going to go out there again. I wasn't going to risk the car. There was a chance the car was already messed up. Um, so why risk it? Right. I'd, I'd rather salvage this motor for the rest of the season if possible. Um, I could only watch as a third session unfolded and it was a nail biter. I like, I didn't want to leave with at least being able to stay on the podium. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to finish fourth or outside of the podium. I want to at least finish third. So of course I was paying attention to the times and, Peter, you gave it a go, bro. Um, you know, I, I was looking at those times and they were dropping and dropping and dropping and then something happened um, and he couldn't hit it. And he was almost there. He was at like low 131s, but he didn't quite hit the 130 marker again. He did hit a 130.6 um, in, in the second session with me, uh, but didn't improve in his third session. So I ended up taking third at the event, which was not ideal, but still a podium. I'll take it. It still points towards the end of the season, which is in flux right now, considering what's going on with the car. 
Now, it turns out that the new challenger that dropped me in a third is the current points leader. So the gap that I narrowed last event widened by the same margin this event. So I made up two points last event, and then this event, he gained two points on me. So we're back on back to square one, which kind of sucks. Um, I think there's a gap of nine points at this point. Uh, and there is a chance that I'm not going to have a car to be able to hit the remaining events. So, you know, who knows? This is all up in the air at the moment, um, you know, with the condition of the car. It's hard to tell if I'll be able to make a move. The engine's hurt, so if it holds, it'll likely be weaker. It might output less power. It's possible. It's possible that it holds the same amount of power, it, and it just means it'll hold for less time meaning it's going to blow up at some point um this season uh i've money shifted it twice now it's overheated to 280 uh, i haven't treated it well and it's held on for three and a half years of total total abuse which i would say it's pretty good if it doesn't hold i would need a swap in three weeks before the next event that's also a hard proposition right i mean you could do a motor in two days pretty easily but i gotta source that motor which right now it just oh man it's it's going to cost me the price that I paid for that black E36 M3 to get a motor for it and that's crazy to think I know everything is more expensive nowadays but it's just crazy to think that I'm going to pay the value of the car just to get another mo another motor but anyway I mean the cards are stacked there's a lot that needs to happen in order for me to finish out this season, just to finish out, let alone, you know, uh, improve and, and be the points leader at the end of the season. It's going to be hard. I actually need to attend every event from here on out in order to get my nine events that they're going to count towards the championship. So uh, it's, uh, it's a little difficult. I don't know. I'm not losing confidence. You know, anything is possible. Definitely, definitely anything is possible. But without a motor, it isn't, you know, you're going to need a motor to be able to do that. So uh, I don't know. I'm holding on to hope, but I am not going to let myself be disappointed if it doesn't happen. This is the name of the game, right? I got into this knowing it would happen at some point. I should have had a new motor by now. Uh, but I've been sort of playing the slow game, hoping to get a deal. I almost got one. Some uh, A friend was swapping over to an S54 recently, decided to sell their S52, and priced it competitively and sold it immediately. It was offered to me, but I did not answer in time, um, so it was lost. And I was like, ah, oh, that would have been perfect. That would have been perfect to have that motor. Uh, but now we're still in the hunt. So if you do have an S52 or a lead on an S52, let me know so I can buy it and put it in my car and continue my time attack season. Now, uh, an update on Beamer Challenge, a full update uh, for the podiums for each class. There are three classes, B1 through B5. And in B1, in first place, Bailey Woods and an E36 M3. In second place, Andrew Lim in an E46 M3. And in third, Alexander Goodrich in an E92 M3. All their times, a minute 16 to a minute 17. 
Uh, flying. Flying. Bailey's car is an E36 M3 with an S54 in it. And, man, that car looks and sounds like it's flying through that track. In B2 class, there were three competitors, David Ishida, Tony Jackson, and Sean McKillop, uh, who were first, second, and third accordingly. And their times floating from 119 to 124, top to bottom. In B3 class, also three competitors, Jason Hansen, Andrea Cairon, and Rob Northrup, in that order, um, that was an E92 M4 and E46 M3. It does not list what Sean McKillop was driving, but there, uh, actually, I'm sorry, that was uh, Jason Hansen in A90 Supra, Andrea Caron in an E36 Z3M, and Rob Northrup in an E92 M3. Their times floating from 122 to 125. Now we get into B4. This is the biggest class. Um, I hope to get into this class. I mean, with the amount of people in here, I think it'd be cooler to be uh, part of this group. I do definitely have to cut a lot out of the car in order to make it, but I should do that. In first place, Christopher Anderson with the E90 M3 and the four-door with the 122.926. And the new B4 record for Streets of Willow clockwise. Congratulations, Chris, and great to meet you, bro. You made my day, did you? You made my day more than you know, uh, probably more so than the third place than I got. You know, it was a bummer, but it was great to meet you, dude. In second place, Ronit Narayan in an E46 M3. And in third place, Augie Soto in an E36 328i. Uh, and their times floating from 122 that I listed to 124 between first and third place. And in B5... Charles Kanaw in an E36 318Ti clearly swapped. I don't know with what, but it's definitely swapped. Also broke a record in B5 Streets of Willow clockwise with a 125.494. In second place, Gianni Ferrara in an E36 M3 with a 127.7. And in third place, myself, 91 octane in an E36 M3 with a 130.5. So it wasn't all bad. Still uh still cool that you know we we were able to take home some hardware. But now there are question marks whether I'll be able to continue for the rest of the season, but we'll do our best to make it happen. The next event is July 29th at Bunt Willow uh doing clockwise 13 and I've been there twice before, actually once before. Uh the other time I went was a different configuration, so I have driven uh, Bunt Willow once and Clockwise 13, um, but it's still going to be some work. I need to figure out. I need to figure out Assetto Corsa on Bunt Willow because I did learn the track on Assetto Corsa, but the physics are all off when I play. So I need to figure that out to make sure I get some practice. But anyway, that is our episode. You can find us at 91 octanecom That is all letters, no numbers. Also, like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. And also follow us on YouTube, youtube.com, 91octane. If you have any questions, email us at info at 91octane.com. I don't know if I already said that. All right. Well, I think that's it. So I'll catch you guys next week. Good night.